from Battlefield Studio Alpha. Welcome to the Wartime Leadership Podcast, where we explore what spiritual resilience looks like from different perspectives. We often focus on the physical, emotional, and social areas of resiliency, but too often we neglect the spiritual pillar. This looks different for everyone. We will be exploring what spiritual resilience looks like in the lives of our guests, who are people from all different walks of life. I'm Nathan Coy, and I am your host for today's episode. And today's episode is sponsored by Success Draft, where we help you transform your dreams into drafted plans. Head over to successdraft.com to get started on your future today. And speaking of today, today is super exciting because I know that we've gone international in the past, We, but they were Americans that were living abroad. Today, it even sounds international because we're coming to you with our guest from Melbourne, Australia. Welcome, Amanda Kate. How are you doing, Amanda? I'm doing really, really well. Thank you so much. <laughs> See what I mean? It just sounds international at this point. <laughs> It makes me excited. Oh, that's very sweet. Hey, I did 11 uh, years in the UK, so my accent's a bit all over the place. <laughs> you know what? But but we'll allow it. We'll allow it. It's, 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 it <laughs> it makes, is what it is. <laughs> it makes you you. And that's what exactly. we like most of all. Hell yeah. So, hey, uh, it, this is actually really cool because you, you've been up for maybe an hour and a half or so. You did your exercise. You, you, you got ready. I mean, it is early morning right now, right? Yeah. Yeah, I was up at five, working out by about quarter past five, so that I had time to have a quick shower, so that I, you know, well, it's wet hair and all that sort of stuff, but uh, <laughs> was slightly presentable to uh, to come chat to you. <laughs> well, I am I am super excited about this. I it's like I tell everybody, I learn just enough about my guests to be able to know the questions I'm going to ask. But your your story, your backstory, stuff that you've done it. I think that you have a really special message and I can't wait to be able to share it with the audience. So, but before, before we get going, you know what time it is. We have to ask these random questions and it truly is a random question generator app that I have. So how did you meet your best friend? Well, funnily enough, um, gosh, I was one of those people who was always the best friend for everybody who had a falling out for their best friend in high school. So I'm not one of those people who's had a best friend for life. And it's one of those things that, you know, I do actually feel quite sad about sometimes. I'd love that longtime friend. I sort of, you know, seem to transient through them. Um, my first best, like, proper, serious Oh, love of my life, best friend. Um, I actually met through my children. I walked into a tumble tots in the UK and we just clicked and we got along so well, but her son was about oh, five or six months older than my son. And then um, she moved up a class and I was like, no, like, <laughs> you know, I don't get to see her anymore. Um, but yeah, we, we just, yeah, couldn't stay away from each other. So it got to the point, especially when our kids were little, um, you know, we'd see each other four or five times a week. We'd cook each other's kids dinner once a week. So take some pressure off. And it was just beautiful. Like the kids were like siblings and, you know, rainy days in the UK, didn't matter what was going on. We'd be out in our wet weather gear and stomping through fields and doing all sorts of stuff. So it was just, it was just phenomenal. See, it's even better when when the families are involved in those oh, 
It was amazing. Because yeah. it, then it just really feels like you 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 naturally have somebody that you can uh, if if you need to to immediately drop off the kids, hey, I've got them yep. they're there. Yeah. So that's yeah, a good deal. She's a pretty special person. Yeah, I I am not going to ask that question. I'm actually going to fast forward through it because that was not <laughs> no. That was highly inappropriate. Uh, what is the most embarrassing thing that has ever happened to you? Oh, God, where do you start? <laughs> oh, my God. I was one of those people who was super easily embarrassed. Mm. Um, and so it didn't ever take a lot for me. I think, I think I could probably put one up that I think most females have dealt with, and that's, you know, bleeding through the back of your school dress. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, it's, you know, it's, you find it absolutely mortifying because of course that's something you don't talk about and that's something that's you know shameful mm -hmm. and should be hidden away and let's pretend that that doesn't happen to girls but um i reckon it was about year nine the first time it happened and it was just absolutely mortifying and you know especially in australia you know on 40 degree days you don't have your jumper with you you mm. got nothing to tie around your waist <laughs> so, yeah you know it can be pretty pretty terrible but uh yeah luckily you know I think I, I think I had my jump for that time, or a girlfriend lent me one, or whatever it was. But uh, yeah, so. I mean, I mean, you, you think you know now as a father, and I'm and I'm looking back at some of these things, and I'm like, oh my gosh, like yeah, yeah. I, I would never yeah. have thought of it being a male. Obviously, mm. you don't think about it a whole lot, and yeah. and so it you know stuff will slip off of your tongue when you're when you're saying stuff, and you just don't yeah. realize how it affects people. And oh yeah, that would be a perfect uh, example of what that might look like. Yeah. Well, all right. Here we go. Next question. I hope it's a good one. Yeah, no, we're not going to ask that one either. What is <laughs> one thing that you find repulsive? Oh. Oh, do you know what? I have to say, I think it's when people miss the toilet. And oh. I just can't bear that. Can't bear it. It is, it is a bugbear. <laughs> and every other week, every other week I live with, you know, three guys in the house. So, you know. <laughs> so you're you're used to really bad aim. Well, I wasn't. This is a relatively new thing. So, <laughs> you know, that's okay. <laughs> I mean, we'll go with kids repulsive. Kids have got to learn. Yeah, kids have got to learn. <laughs> that's okay. All Okay. <laughs> All right, what is which Disney villain would you play tennis with? I am really bad at tennis. My hand-eye coordination has never been great. Um, <laughs> so whoever it is would probably wipe the floor with me. Uh, Disney villains, I've got to think through now. Goodness, there's so many. Um, I like the one from Cars. He's probably one of my favorites. Okay. Yeah. And and all they would do really is kind of go back and forth anyways. I so. might actually have a chance. <laughs> See? There you go. You take your you take it out on him. There you go. Uh, hey, Amanda, the conversation's been good already leading up to even the start of this. And now with the questions, you you brightened my day. So I'm I'm, I'm very I'm very happy about this conversation right now. Hey, uh, why don't you why don't you walk us through your background? Kind of take us through where you've been. You know, you start wherever you want to and bring us up to the present. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, you know, I had one of those childhoods that feels pretty normal at the time. You know, I had I was very blessed and had my parents. They're actually still together. They celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary this year. Um, we had, um, you know, they didn't have a lot of money growing up. Mum would make our clothes. Um, she was very handy, great sewer, you know, all of that sort of stuff. So, you know, I guess it looked like one of those pretty normal, wholesome childhoods. Dad went out to work. Mum stayed home. Um and, you know, I did what every white middle-class Church of England girl would do. I got good grades and I was a bit of a goody two-shoes because I was a bit afraid of, you know, stepping out of line. Um, the, the strictness was definitely there. The expectation was there. There was definitely an expectation to perform. And I don't think I realised how much that stifled me. Um, at the time, I, I kind of did. I remember finding some old diaries and I wasn't great at keeping diaries, but, you know, these few little bitch sessions I'd had in my diaries about it, um, you know, but but from the outside, I guess, again, it looked pretty normal, basic, pretty good upbringing. Um, and then I did the usual, you know, go off to university, got a job, and then I decided to go travelling because my sister had started travelling overseas, so I went over to the UK. Um and I ended up meeting my ex-husband there. And so my two-year working holiday visa turned out to be 11 years. Um, and I always joke that I went away with a, you know, a backpack and a suit bag and came back with a 40-foot container, a husband and two kids. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, that's and a good then, way of looking at it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> my, my investment in my time over there certainly, um, you know, <laughs> I guess, paid off in one way or another. Um, certainly the two kids I would, I'm just ever so grateful for. Um, but my, a lot of my time over there was really, really challenging. I was homesick. I was lonely. Um, I remember just getting back from the honeymoon and my ex-husband was like, well, you've got to create your own life. I've got one over here. You've got to sort yourself out. And I'm like, oh, I think I've made a big mistake. <laughs> like that was the first time I really sort of went, ooh, and there were a lot of those little moments where I'd get these little, oh, shit, I'm, I'm on my own over here. Crap. Like there was one thing promised and now there's one thing actualizing. And, and I'd been, you know, given the right act by my parents that if I got divorced within five years, they had a five-year money-back guarantee and I wasn't earning a lot of money. And, you know, so I actually felt really stuck. Um, and I know it was probably a joke, but at the same time, you know, for me, it was very real. I was like, shit, how do I pay back a 10 grand wedding and all the rest? But, you know, it was what it was. And so I kind of stayed to make the best of it. Had my son. It was amazing. Um, my ex-husband worked away a lot. So he was gone from 6.30 in the morning till 7, 7.30 at night, um, five days a week. And then he'd play football on the weekend. And, you know, that took half a day out. So I was pretty much a single mum. I tried sort of taking a Saturday morning for me. And it was like, you know, you shouldn't be taking so much family time away from the family. Like we don't have a lot of family time as it is. And I'm like, well, <laughs> I kind of need a little bit of time. But it was just this constant drops in the bucket um, and it was really hard. You know, we had a lot of toxic 
arguments, a lot of fights, and every time I tried to sort of stand up for myself, I would be shot down and and all the rest of it. And I didn't really, I didn't understand that it was emotionally abusive. I didn't understand it was psychologically abusive. I didn't understand the financial abuse. I didn't understand any of those concepts. And so for me it was, um, you know, it was kind of normal. The woman stayed at home, the man went out to work and okay, his attitude stunk, but you know, maybe that's just what it was. My mum had always said relationships are hard work. So I thought I was, you know, getting an A plus and doing a great job because my relationship was that hard. So I'm like, yeah, awesome. Winning. Um, <laughs> different kind of hard, but you know, we ended up um, moving back to Australia uh, because my ex-husband's role was made redundant. He had to turn off the lights on a company. And so we moved back to Australia and the first couple of months here were probably the best couple of months that we'd had in our relationship. I guess it was new and exciting and all the rest, but then the reality hit and the fact he'd moved away from his family and, you know, he actually had to step up and be a dad because we didn't have family support around us. Um, all of that kind of stuff just started getting things to be more and more toxic. And then my son was struggling to settle in at school. He was physically hurt uh, 13 times in 26 weeks at his new school. So he went from this bright, bubbly, you know, beautiful, big-hearted little boy to stomach aches and nervousness and, you know, a lack of desire to go to school and all of that sort of stuff. And my daughter had just started uh, nursery school when we left the UK, but over here she was too young for school and she's always been super, super bright. So I would have four-hour tantrums from her in the day because she was just so frustrated and had such big emotions. And, you know, so I was literally dealing with all of this and trying to keep that house of cards from falling down. Um, and, you know, it got to a point where I was needing two, three-hour naps in the afternoon, like I was not getting through the day and I couldn't work out why because I was usually such a self-starter. I was so motivated. I would fight through anything. And it really did get to a point where I had no idea what was going on with me and doctors were like, you're the healthiest sick person I've ever seen. And I'm going, well, there's something clearly wrong. And I was suffering for 13 days a month with my menstrual cycle um, so there was about six days in the middle of the month, seven days at the end of the month. And, and it was just exhausting me for the rest of the time. So the gynecologist was trying to put me on antidepressants. And that was really when alarm bells started going off. I'm like, whoa, hang on a minute. Like, are you just trying to give me a prescription to, cause you can't work out what the issue is. And so anyway, we, uh, that was really what led me down the path of natural therapies and, in that path, I ended up finding kinesiology, which is what I do now, which is different from your kinesiology in the state. So for us, it's an energy healing modality whereby we're looking at the energetic um, buildup, the energetic stresses in the body and vibrationally shifting them out. So we do a lot of trauma-informed work. Um, it's a somatic therapy. So, you know, we do a little bit of EFT. We do almost like the EMDR eye movement type um, stuff. We do a bit of reflexology, acupressure points, you know, we sort of bring in a whole heap of different bits into kinesiology and, and use those vibrational frequencies to shift that trauma pattern out of the body. Um, and I guess I started realizing that so much of what I was holding and so much of my chronic fatigue was actually caused by this emotional stress that I'd been under. I was walking on eggshells every day of my life and, and it felt 
I was always on edge. My nervous system was always primed for that next attack and that next attack and that next attack. And, you know, how do I stop that one from coming? And I was constantly alert and watching all of the tiny, minute behaviours to see if I was about to be under the pump or not. And, and so in that primed state, my nervous system just ran out of juice. Like it was just completely misfiring. My adrenals were completely shot. It's cost me thousands and thousands of dollars with my naturopath and chiropractor and kinesiologists and all sorts of other, you know, acupuncturists and Chinese doctors and all the rest of it to try and get them back into normal. Um, and so, yeah, so finding kinesiology just changed my life. I remember my first session, my practitioner said to me, I don't think you understand how emotionally abused you are, do you? And I'm like, what? <laughs> and she had to explain to me what it was. And straight away, a number of the relationships I had kind of fell into place. And I'm like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But it took me another four months mm-hmm. to actually realise who my biggest abuser was. And it actually came because a friend spoke up and she's like, you don't realise how screwed up your marriage is, do you? And I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, it's not normal. And she started and I'm like, <laughs> you know, I must have been like explaining physics to a toddler because I was like, what? <laughs> like, wow. I don't understand. And she literally had to point out some of the things that I'd said and why it was screwed up and and what a normal relationship looked like or what a healthier relationship looked like because let's face it there is no such thing as normal but what that healthy communion could be and I was like oh oh and then all these cogs started falling into place and then come the January it was I just I I couldn't do it anymore I had to leave I just I couldn't and then we had six months under the same roof which was hell on earth Um, and I ended up you know, at the police station more than once and they were trying to get me to get an IVO, but which is an intervention order. But I just couldn't do that to my children. I really couldn't do it to my children. And so I was like, I've got to find a new way to deal with this. And I think that's really when I I I I delved into the more spiritual side of I mean, I'd already been doing a lot of that work for a long time, but it's like I had to go all in with it. I had to I had to find those spiritual teachers that spoke to me. I had to find those those things that would give me that strength because I felt like a completely broken shell of a human being. Um, and it was it was it was one of the toughest journeys. It still is <laughs> one of the toughest journeys of my life. Um, but again, I guess it's that choose your heart. And as hard as leaving was, staying, I believe, would have killed me in the end. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, you, I mean, already, like, I wish I could actually show you, you can't see it because <laughs> my backdrop, but you, you hit some really, really powerful things in, in just that little quick, <laughs> like literally like eight minute thing. It's just, you know, my natural, def- it was a natural defense mechanism that you were putting up this almost like it was a blinder. That, that mm-hmm. you put on, you know, on racehorses, what they do in order to get them to go to get forward is they put yeah. those blinders on the side. Yeah. And it's almost like you had those blinders up that you couldn't see what was actually happening around you. And yeah. you had a really good friend mm-hmm. who said, no, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. This, is, this is not healthy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then to and keep without it up, people speaking up, yeah. I wouldn't have. 
I wouldn't have ever realised, I don't think, because it was such a normal ingrained pattern. And it happens so insidiously. You know, mm. emotional abuse is not one of those things that, you know, it's 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 not like a punch where you know it's happening. It mm-hmm. is like all of these little drops in a bucket just gradually undermining a foundation until you are literally just a mess. Yeah. And you don't know what's up, what's down, what's right, what's wrong. You know, if I did one thing one day, it would be perfect and then I'd do it the next day and it would be completely wrong and I would be it's like... I would have this verbal tirade about my behaviour, about my opinions, about like mm. every, like I would be ripped to shreds and I'd be like, but yesterday that was good. And now I'm being ripped to shreds for the same thing. And so there was constantly changing goalposts. And that's how they, that's that's often how these kind of people work is, is they change the goalposts all the time so you never have sure footing. You're always off balance. Yeah, always changing the field. Yeah, you know, it's like in the middle of a tennis match, they they switch you from clay yep. to hard court. It's just yep, exactly two different styles. You know of what? Play. It wouldn't even be it wouldn't even be from clay to hard court. It'd be putting me in the middle of a squash court all of a sudden, mm. or badminton, or you know, all of a sudden I'd be playing water polo. Like it wasn't even the same game. It was wow. it was a completely different game, completely different court, and I'd be chucked in the deep end, and I'd be like, "Whoa, okay, now I've got to learn how to navigate this." And then I'd learn to navigate that, but you know, it was changing so rapidly, I couldn't even keep up. Yeah, and and you didn't even know who the enemy was at that point because it's like you no. said that the 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 system continued to change. It was just these a lot of toxic arguments that continued to flip and. Flip. And I blamed me. It was always mm. my fault because he truly believed he was perfect. Mm. that's that's you know one of the big mo's and and so it was always my fault and so when somebody is always telling you that everything that goes wrong is your fault you you believe it because it's like this constant wearing away at your esteem at your confidence at your you know at, at everything that you hold dear about yourself until you, there is nothing left mm. and so there was this part of me that just went I can't do this anymore. What What was the defining moment? Like, when did it finally click for you? I can't do this. <laughs> when did it really first click? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> when my son was 10 days old. Wow. My son was 10 days old and my ex-husband went out to his Christmas party. And I rang him at 10 o'clock saying, this baby has not stopped crying for over five hours. I need somebody here. I need some help. And he refused to come home. He did not come home till after three o'clock in the morning. And the baby had just gone to sleep. And I was, I was beyond, beyond anything. And I went, you know what? This man is never going to prioritize me or this mm. child ever. And then I, I felt stuck because I was over the other side of the world from my family. I had no support structures. Mm. You know, mm. I was, I was like, what do I do? How do I do this? I've just got to get through. And so, that, but that was the first time that I really had that inkling. I guess the last, the, the thing that tipped me over the edge to finally leave within four days. No, actually, I had, I had a session on a Tuesday and a session on a, I think it was a Thursday, at, with a psych, with my psychologist and then with my kinesiologist, and both of them said. Look, I both of them kind of had the same conversation. They're like, look, as much as this sort of goes against what I'm supposed to do with you right now, I don't think you're ever going to see this unless I bluntly say it. Have you ever heard of narcissistic personality disorder? Mm. And I went, no. And they went, go home and look it up. 
They didn't say any more than that. Mm-hmm. But I was reading it and I'm like, oh. And it was like all of these cogs just fell into place. And that night I kicked him out of my bed. I said, we're done. I can't do this. I cannot do this. It needs to be done. It, it, and it's interesting that you say, I couldn't do that to my children when you were talking yeah. about getting the the order against him. Mm. Yeah. And that 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 brings a whole nother element into it. You know, you were willing yeah. to take the abuse on yourself. The I yeah. mean, let's yeah, he was an abuser. Yeah. Outright. Yeah. And you couldn't take his children away from him, or you couldn't do that to your children to perpetuate no. it. And I didn't want to leave them there to uh-huh. deal with it because I knew I was taking the brunt. I was bearing the brunt. And it did. It happened so that when I left, my son started bearing the brunt. Mm. And that and that felt awful. And and I also had to remind myself, you know what, these kids have signed up for me as the mother and, and this man as the father, they have their lessons to learn. So all I can do is give them one happy home, promise them one happy home where they are loved, they can be themselves, and that's all I can promise them. But if I stay, I'm not going to make it. And then they're not going to have a mother and they're going to be left with that. And I was honestly at that point. This, this is huge because you know mm. m- my wife left her family to come live with me. Right? She's yeah. she's from the Philippines, oh, wow. and so she left to come to Guam originally, and then mm-hmm. the next year we moved halfway around the world to to Maryland. Yeah. So, what do you say to individuals that don't have that support system directly around them? What 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 do you think is a good way to go about when you move to a new area? where you don't know anyone and you're kind of there in the middle of nothing. <laughs> Do you know, I think, I don't think I have the answer for that. Um, I had started again so many times and, you know, it was like starting again, again and starting again, again. And it was exhausting because you're always having to put on your, you know, your game face and be on the top of your game and be fun and pleasant and nice and, you know, and you're in amongst all these school mums who have this history from kinder and from this and from that and from the other and they've got their, you know, a lot of people have their school friends and a lot of people have their work friends and a lot of people. But because my school was in Adelaide, you know, and we moved from Perth to Adelaide when I was, you know, in my childhood, moving from Adelaide to the UK and then because I was in amongst a bunch of travellers, they were constantly heading home and then I'd be starting again with a new friend group and then, you know, they'd all leave and then I got some work friends. But, of course, they all had their school friends and all of that sort of stuff, so it was actually really challenging. I felt like I was constantly starting again. And even then when I left my ex-husband, every single friend I had left me. And because we didn't have that connection and nobody understood, I didn't understand that I was actually in PTSD. Mm-hmm. I had PTSD. Um, And I know obviously, you know, especially for you guys in the armed forces, you know, you understand a lot about that. But it's only really recent history that people understand that PTSD comes from other types of trauma as well. It's not just war trauma. Absolutely. That was where it first came from. But I was in PTSD. Now, now real quick, it depends on whose definition of war it is. Yes. Because my definition of war is not yours and it's your story. 
Yeah. So I don't, I don't, you know, but I think that you're, you're 100% correct that it mm. wasn't until recent history. However, it's been going on for a very, very long time. PTSD yeah. does not say have anything in the military. It says post-traumatic yeah. stress disorder, yes. right? Yeah. But it was originally, um, I think it was in the 1960s um, that it started to be coined that. Mm. And it was usually because of vets, um, because that was the, that was obviously the most obvious you know, connection that people could make. Um, and, but I was in it and I didn't realise that I would have these outbursts and I would have these, you know, crying fits or I would have these angry fits or, you know, whatever it was because, and if you look at, you know, people who've been in domestic violence situations, it very much is that. And it's, it's just a really, like I say, it's been fascinating going through it and it's made me a better person for going through it as well. Mm-hmm. Um but, and, you know, now I can, and I just need to say it because I think it is really important. I feel like I've done enough work now. I don't hate my ex-husband. He is doing the best he can with the tools he has. He is doing the best he can with my children, with the tools he has available. He is doing the best with his new partner that he can with the tools he has available. The same way I'm doing the best I can with the tools I have available to me. And... And I truly believe that of him. I don't believe he ever woke up in the morning and went, you know what, I'm going to really piss off Amanda today. I'm going to hurt her. I'm going to damage her. I'm going to, I don't believe he ever did that. Now, and from his point of view, from his version of truth, I'm mentally, there's something mentally wrong with me. I have a, you know, mental disorder or whatever. So he would actually say, you know, and that's his truth. And I'm not going to stand in the way of that truth for him either. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and I guess with PTSD symptoms, it probably looks like that. And when you're in an abusive situation, the person being abused is often the person who is not believed. Mm-hmm. You know, even my family didn't believe me that it was as bad as it was. You know, even now when I say things, my sister will still deny my truth. Still. Wow. Into the fact that we've barely spoken for two years. And so I think that's a bigger letdown than anything else is when those who are closest to you that are experiencing and seeing you go through something when they don't grab on to reality. Yeah. Because it's it's each individual's reality of the situation. Yep. Mm. Yeah. And so I did I I went through the loneliest period after divorce because I didn't feel like I go could go to my parents. I couldn't go to my sister, you know. My friends were were leaving by the by the droves, and and because it was hard dealing with divorce, you know, when everyone else is in happy happy marriages, um, but you know, I think I think that's the thing. What has helped me find my tribe to sort of circle back is becoming more and more me, becoming the truth of who I am, unlayering all of that trauma to actually get back to and not even getting back to but but just discovering more and more of the truth of me and I did a lot of work to you know just go God just send me my people send me my tribe and it was amazing actually because those friends that cleared out there were a few people sort of standing around the periphery that hadn't come closer because those other people hadn't stepped out far enough But once these people left, yeah, it felt lonely. But then I'd just see these other people coming in 
Mm. And I was like, okay, this is it. This is it. And I now have, you know, probably a half dozen people who I just absolutely love and adore who are there for me, who are, you know, real soul sisters for me, like really deep, deep friendships. And so I think that the more we can access that part of us and show ourselves true self, the more we will naturally attract those people Mm. who are our tribe because it's that vibrational frequency that that people are reading and i nobody could ever get to like me before because i was always trying to work out how do i think they want me to be mm. so therefore how should i act so that i can be accepted how should i act so that i could be loved by these people so i was a people pleaser i thought i was so inferior to everybody else i put everybody else ahead of me and i would do everything i could i would bust my ass to make everybody else happy mm-hmm. and but in that I've already got a power dynamic that's not going to work in a friendship because I'm putting myself beneath everybody else and trying to make everybody else happy. Where what it should just be that level equal play. Yeah. And, and I, I like how you describe that. I love how you describe it, though. You say, mm. I'm a recovering people pleaser. Yeah. So, yeah. So then how do you I actually still fall into that? that? I know. <laughs> well, that's, that's kind of the direction I was going to yeah. go with this question. How yeah. do you balance that? right? There's, there's yeah. a balance between it. The thing that I notice now, and I think again, because I've gotten so intimately acquainted with my inner landscape. So the way I sort of describe it is I have built this internal scaffolding, which is that spiritual practice. It is the, the self-awareness. It is the self-responsibility for my healing and my reactions and all of that. And I'm building that external scaffolding, which is, you know, having a divinely loving partner who respects me and loves me. You know, the relationships I build with my children, the relationships I've been building with all of those other, you know, facets of my life. Just one second. So it's absolutely amazing hearing you talk about the tribe and understanding who the tribe is around you mm-hmm. and those people who truly feed and we're waiting for other individuals to kind of clear out and clear way right mm, yeah and and that's that's a good way of looking at it because those are the when when you describe tribe obviously i'm i'm a i'm an eighth cherokee you know indian so it's really mm-hmm. kind of cool to to think of the tribe and everyone has a role that they play mm-hmm. within that community in your life as a leader, mm. you, you had to develop and change yourself as you went through the different stages of what, what happened, you know, from either yeah. moving to England or moving back to Australia and then mm-hmm. ultimately making that decision to leave your husband, leave yeah. the abuser in, yeah. in where they were. Yeah. What did that look like for you? Like, how did your leadership style develop over that course? Oh, goodness. Um, I don't think I had much leadership in me at all um, early in my life. I think I was very much, I was so busy trying to people please and the people pleaser doesn't stand up and and lead anything, to be honest, because they're so busy waiting for everybody else to make the first move and, and trying to work out, you know, what's going on. And I think as I got out of that, you know, phase of, of my life and, and that marriage, 
I was really more just tapping more and more into my heart space. What would love to? What's in my highest good right now? And I think that by tapping, and and the subtitle of my book is Prioritising Internal Truth Over External Influence. And the more and more I did that, the more I tuned into my internal truth. I mean, having my family tell me I was making a big mistake, having my friends tell me things like, you know, in six months you're going to regret it and he'll have moved on and you won't be able to get him back. You know, I had people say, you'll never be loved the way he loves you. And I'm like, well, that's part of the reason I'm leaving is I never want to be loved like that again, you know, like, let's face it. Um, But there was this part of me going, you are all wrong because you don't know my truth. And what you're choosing to do is see the rich, successful man rather than the woman who has been struggling for years. And you're not seeing the truth of me. What you're seeing is the picture that we have painted and that I have protected so that they wouldn't see the truth of who he was. That's what you're seeing. You're seeing this facade that I built that makes it look amazing. But you're not seeing behind that facade to the truth of what's going on. And so I really had to trust that my heart was leading me in the right direction. And so I never really set out to be a leader. I set out to know me. I set out to get to the truth of who I was, to my heart, to what my soul wanted. I was trying to listen to that quiet voice inside me that knew what I needed to do because I was so used to looking outside of myself at the shiny lights, at Mm -hmm. the at the brightness, at the, you know, at everybody else's opinions. But there was that tipping point where I was like, no, you guys don't know me. You actually don't know what you're saying. You don't know what you're looking at. Because what you're seeing, as I say, is this fakeness that I've created that you think is picture perfect, that is anything but behind the scenes. And and getting into that heart space And finding spiritual practices that were for me because having grown up in the church, I I found it was a lot of that, you know, people would walk in and be holier than thou and walk out and be the same asshole they were before they walked in. And I'm like, I don't like that kind of hypocrisy. I can't cope with that. It just, and I think because also, you know, my ex-husband's the, hi, how are you? Everything's fake. Nothing ever reaches the eyes. Mm. You know, there's the <laughs> kind of joke. And I'm like, oh, it just, that mm-hmm. lack of, the lack of resonance, the lack of it touching the eyes, the soul, that for me creates that disconnect. Mm-hmm. And I can't do that. I want somebody who is congruent and whole and truthful, where when they laugh, their eyes light up, where when they you know, connect with people. It is a really heartfelt, hi, how are you? Not a hi, how are you doing? Mm-hmm. It's real. The faux facade. Yeah, exactly. I want real now. And I think the more I've gotten in touch with my real, the more people have just seen it and they're attracted to it because they're like, oh, you're doing you. Huh, mm. okay, this is interesting. 
and I this think is what in me you doing me, look like. Yeah, and in me doing me, it's like that Marianne Williamson quote, I'm giving them permission to shine their light and to be who they are. And that's what I want to do with leadership is more become more and more me. I have one value. I, I kind of got rid of all the others. I got it down to one value, which is self-mastery. The more I can master myself, the better I can show up in the world, the more heart I can show into the world, the more me I can become, the more I control my reactions and become responsive. The more I can shine my light, the more I am in divine service of others and can help them shine their light. You, that's you know, that thing. In, in, in resilience, mm -hmm. you, you look for certain key things. And, and I, I see a lot of re resilience and leadership co you know coming along together a lot like they parallel each other a lot and one yeah. of those things is is moral courage right mm -hmm. to have the moral courage to stand up to those who aren't right who who yeah. are not moral moralistically sound in what they're mm -hmm. doing as yeah. well as you know th there's all these different you know they want to create psychologically safe environments for individuals to be able to share their thoughts their ideas yeah. and be able to express who they are as well as when something is wrong yeah so so i don't you said i didn't see myself as a leader younger in life but in reality you really were mm -hmm. because you still had to stand up in many of those moments in even if it's inside of here inside of yeah. your mind to say that that's wrong yeah so I think you've been a leader a lot longer mm. than you think. It just took, <laughs> it was more of a leader in development. <laughs> mm. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. And and you've mentioned it a few times and the the name of your book is Divine Messy Human. Yes. And it it really hits into some of those spiritual aspects. So I'd really like you now to take us on a journey of how do you define spiritual resilience? Mm. Yeah. So I, I actually wrote it um, as a as a small. I mean, my book is kind of little bite sized chapters um, because it's about the tools and techniques that I used to kind of, I guess, get me through this. So it is about emotional fluency and why we ha why we have a natural pr propensity for darkness in our thoughts and you know. But I wrote on my idea of spirituality and I think because my early idea of spirituality, I always loved being in church. I loved when everyone sang together, whenever you could feel everyone's hearts expanding. I just didn't like the bit where everyone stepped outside and put on their normal human clothes. I loved the divinity in church. I love, I still love going into an empty church and just sitting quietly. And I know a church is a building and look, I walk the beach every morning for about 7K with my dog. And, you know, that is also my church. Nature is also my church. For me, the idea of where I can touch God has has Im increased dramatically. And, you know, I use different terms interchangeably. I call it God, the goddess, source, creator, you know, universal intelligence, whatever. I use different names depending on the aspects, even Mother Nature, depending on the aspect of, of, of God that I'm I'm connecting to because I don't think, you know, I don't certainly look at God as this vengeful, you know, brimstone and fire, you know, man with a white beard up in the clouds. You know, I also don't really see, you know, it as a gendered thing. For me, it's that, it's that power. It is that source. It is the pure love, pure 
joy, pure happiness, pure peace. It is that purity of spirit that we all have within us. Every single person has that within them. It's the messy humanness. It is the conditioning. It is the, it is our life experiences. It is all of the stuff that happens to us and has happened to our family that has passed down to us. And that, you know, whether you believe it or not, you know, that we've brought in from past experiences as souls here in, in human form, whatever you want to call it. All of those different aspects, I think, feed into our experience now. And as we can unlayer and uncover that more messy human aspect, then we can tap into that divinity more and more. And we can be accepting of when we do screw it up and when we fall into our messy humanness. I'm not, I'm by no means, you know, standing in my divine self all the time. I am messy as hell. And, and I think that's the beautiful paradox of the journey is that, that we can hold those things both true at the same time. I have a deep love for who my ex-husband is. He is the father of my children. He's doing the best he can. And I will never condone his behaviour. And they mm -hmm. can sit comfortably side by side. They don't need to compete for attention anymore. They used to compete for attention because I'd be like, I should be able to love this person as a soul being. But this is standing in the way. With the work I've done, they can sit comfortably side by side, so none are drawing my attention. You know, wow. we we had a bit of a dispute last night about, you know, we're supposed to be going off on holiday this afternoon, and anyway, we had a bit of a challenge with where the kids are going to be and how we're going to, you know, be able to head off a bit early and all of this kind of stuff. Now, in that moment, I did not... You know, I, I felt like a three-year-old throwing a tantrum, but I wanted to leave at this time. You know, this isn't fair. We've been waiting for this getaway for so long and now it's being delayed. You know, I felt like that toddler who was chucking her toys out the pram. Now, was there a better way for me to handle it? Of course there was. You know, <laughs> of course there was. There will always be a better way to handle it. You know, I'm still as messily human as everybody else. Mm-hmm. What I'm trying to do is tap into that divinity more and more. It's to see God in nature. It is to see God in the other person. You know, I could also see everybody in the situation last night was still doing the best they could, even though we were all acting unresourcefully. <laughs> so, you know, and there's no judgment in that either. Again, that's part of that paradox. Yeah. I can see the unresourcefulness. I can see the divinity. I can see there'd be a better way to do it, and yet we're doing it this way. Okay, it's all there, mm -hmm. and it's all existing at the same time. And I think for me, that is almost the crux of that spirituality, is being able to see those different aspects and accept that they're all there, that they all exist, and not try and fight one or the other. Yeah, and, and I like, I, I really appreciate how you said that where they they can now comfortably sit side by side because you know i think too often we we want to clean it up and we want to mm -hmm. make it look better and we we want it to go away yeah when in reality it's still a part of who we are it's still yeah. our story it's still yeah. still how it's written mm. and they it it's it's a part of who we are yeah. and where we came from my my, yeah. my history i would love to not have ever have done any of the yeah. stuff I had done in my past, if it yeah. meant the same outcome. 
Yeah. Exactly. If it meant a different outcome, absolutely no. Yeah. No way. Yeah. Absolutely. So I really like. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, even even when I bring it to you know my sister, you know, I had I obviously had to grieve so so much because we were best friends at one point, and I had to really really sit and grieve that. And then it came into this whole thing of, okay, is is she somebody who is safe to have in my life? Can Will she respect my boundaries? Will she respect my history? You know, I can't see that happening. So, okay, distance is the best thing for us. When I saw her in July for my parents' 50th wedding anniversary, I literally, as I said goodbye to her, I gave her all I could think the whole time I was there, God, I miss you. I miss you. And as I said goodbye to her, I just said, I miss you and I love you. Mm. Now that is the 100% truth. I miss her and I love her. And also I won't have that in my life whilst it is not safe for me. Yeah, you can't You can't do that to yourself. No. Nor no. To, to her to give her no. acceptance for what has been said in the past. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So how how do you build it? How do you build that spiritual resiliency that you talked about in yourself, in your family? How do you build up spiritual resili- resilience? I I how do I do it? Do you know I don't judge the others for where they're at, you know, and I don't really ram it down my kids' throat either. They I really just demonstrate where I'm at. I admit when I'm wrong. I'll tell them that I'm wrong. I'm I'm much better now at seeing my own flaws and my own faults and being able to allow them to be there without as much judgment so they can sit with a bit more acceptance. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, if I, you know, they say big kids, big problems, you know, if my kids come to me with, you know, what's going on for them, okay, you know, what does support look like for you? What do you need from me? And a lot of the time they just need a hug. They just need to know that someone's there. And in me doing this work, Mm. it's been really interesting watching my relationship with them. It's like they're learning through osmosis. Mm. They they come to me, you know, it's quite funny. I, I know when, say, for example, my son wants to speak to me, he sort of just hops from foot to foot. He's, you know, <laughs> he's six foot three. He's, you know, crazy big kid, you know, nearly 17, and he hops from foot to foot just waiting mm. for mum to be ready. Honey, do you need to talk? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Is this a, you know, do we stay here in the kitchen or do you want to go somewhere else? <laughs> you know. I want to go somewhere but else. But there's that little, you know, there's just that little thing. And 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 I can always tell because it just kind of hangs around. It's like he's trying to get the courage up to say whatever he needs to say. And I just let him do it. The same, My daughter kind of does a similar thing as well. You know, there's that little hang around and, okay, mum, I need to talk to you. Okay. No worries. And so... It's really almost just holding the space for them to do their own discovering. They know I'm here. They know I can give advice, 
but realistically, do they want my advice? I mean, what do I know? I'm just their mum, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. And so it's it's giving. So I think, you know, in terms of that spiritual resiliency, I'm playing my game. I'm doing my inquiry. I'm doing my practices. I do my own work. And it really is almost that solo game for so much of it. Mm -hmm. But it changes the way I interact with people. It changes the way I, I love them, the way that I talk to them, the way that I care for them, the way that I show up for them. And so... You know, I mean, my kids still laugh at, at how I was hmm. before. And they've seen the change and they're, they're like, oh, God, we're, you know, as terrible as it was, it was the best thing you did. You know, they can admit that because they've seen the change in me. They're living yeah. the change in me. You know, they don't have the mum who will fly off the handle at nothing and, you know, scream and shout and externalise all the, her pain. They have a mum now, I can't even remember the last time, you know, my voice was raised with them. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm really struggling for that kind of thing because there's just not that same anger sitting there anymore. Yeah, but I think that this answer that you just gave kind of answers the the balance question mm-hmm. from earlier because I think that the people-pleasing balance yeah. that you found is what do you need from me? Because mm. you recognize that, eat, you know, let's take your kids, for instance, they're yeah. both different. Oh, yeah. They're yeah. both different. They need different things from you yeah. as mom, mm. right? They need that. And yeah. you have recognized, okay, I know you're coming to me for something. What do I need to give you? Yeah. And that's that. That's people pleasing. Yes. But it's balanced because you're not giving them more than what they're asking and you're not yeah. taking more than you want than you need. Yeah. So the way I sort of look at that is, you know, my big thing is about being of service to others rather than in service to others. So before I was working from this place of being in service to others, in servitude, making myself less than. Now I'm of service to others. What do you need from me? What can I give you? What do I have the capacity to give you? You know, do I have to say no here? Is that going to cross the boundary? You know, I've, I've got a lot more nuance and a lot more discernment around what I can offer, what I want to offer, what I feel they need. And also that that awareness that sometimes people just want to talk or sometimes people just want to offload steam or sometimes, you know, whatever it is. And that's okay too. And so I think that's the biggest thing spiritual development has given me is that discernment, is that understanding of of equality Mm -hmm. or equity, whatever you want to call it, that, you know, we all take different positions. You know, it's not this hierarchy. It's more of a global system and we're sort of, you know, all somewhere in the mix at some time. You know, sometimes we'll be at the top of the globe, other times we'll be at the bottom of the globe. You know, my children always teach me stuff. Hmm. Always. So that doesn't mean I'm their teacher and they're, you know, my student. 
I'm this, you know, we're sort of both in both roles. And so I sort of see that more global sort of model where people can be in multiple positions at once and learning and growing and teaching at the same time. I think that us as parents always want to be the one who's teaching the lesson, who's always, hey, that's not the right thing to do. When in reality, mm. it's it maybe it's the right thing for them as long as it's moral, yeah. eth- you know, as long as it's moral, ethical, uh, legal, whatever those those yeah. cases may be. Uh, but you're right. Sometimes mm. people just need to talk to talk to yeah. to be hurt. So it's actually interesting when my staff comes to my door, and in in the office, and you know, I know that that my one when she walks in, I know exactly. Okay, she she is with purpose right now. So I ask yeah. one simple question. Well, two simple questions. Do you need me to listen to hear? Yeah. Or do you need me to listen to respond? Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Huge, huge difference maker yeah. in even my life at home. Like, okay, yeah. sweetheart, do you need me to listen to respond or do you just need me to hear? Yeah. My girlfriend has a has a very similar but different one of that. So when she wants to, her husband just to listen, she'll go, okay, story. <laughs> and then she says it. And then sometimes she gets partway through the story and she'll be like, oh, actually, no, I need, I actually do want input on this one. Hmm. Or sometimes she'll get partway through the story and realise she didn't say story and she's like, shit, he's going to be responsible. <laughs> Hang on, this one's a story. <laughs> you know, so, very similar, but it's that, yeah. It's, I need it's to start really using cool. that. Tell her oh, that I am, I am stealing <laughs> from now on. Hey, yeah, and and all of this, you know, has brought up some really good, you know, I have more questions and I wish we could go just <laughs> a whole nother hour actually, but you've got to take your kids. Uh, you've yes. got to do, do school duty. Right. So real quick, yeah. Can you take us through Divine Messy Human, the, your your book? Just kind of mm. give us the highlights of what, what it looks like. Yeah, the, um, the subtitle is A Spiritual Guide to Prioritizing Internal Truth Over External Influence. And, and that really is, I guess, it in a nutshell. As I said, the whole, word, the whole book is pretty much just the title. It is looking at the divinity. It is looking at our messiness. It's looking at our humanity. It's looking, it's giving tools and techniques that I've used. So it's not a lot of my story. There's not a lot of my story in there. Um, it's more about the the how I did it and the tools I used and the some of those major bits. So it is done in really short little bite-sized chapters. And a lot of people have said they really love that because they can pick it up and, you know, read a quick chapter and, you know, it's easily digestible. And, you know, it does hit some esoteric points. It does get quite deep at times. But also I think people will access it differently depending on where they're at. So it is simple mm-hmm. enough for people who are just starting to dip their toe into that spirituality. And it also works for people who've been doing the work for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is is the beauty of it. Like I'm so proud of it. I know it, it sounds crazy, but, you know, it was literally 120 days from me typing the first words to holding it in my hands because once I opened that container, it just flowed because wow. it had been in my head for so long. You know, I talk about concepts, you know, of the acceptance, of discernment, of creating boundaries. So it really kind of encapsulates a lot of the stuff we've talked about today, um, just in slightly different ways. You know, balancing our masculine and feminine principles, how we can look at 
you know, becoming more whole as, as through that healing journey. Um, yeah, learning to love those bits of us we've been ashamed of or we've cut off or we've hid from the world and learning to accept those parts of us back into the fold. Mm -hmm. And we will have a link in the description mm -hmm. below for individuals who are looking forward to that book. I, yeah. I know plenty will. Mine's in the mail, so I'm, I'm excited <laughs> oh, because awesome. I get to go on that. Thank you. Uh, and, and now, I, I really hate to do this with authors especially because immediately they're like, well, everyone should just read my book. Oh, no. but, but I'm looking on the bookshelf behind you, and I'm seeing <laughs> that you got plenty of other things that aren't just oh, divine, yeah. messy humans. So oh, my God. why don't you give us one, two uh, books that you recommend for listeners to, to read or listen to? I think especially because, you know, obviously your your jam is leadership. I think you can't go past Brene Brown's work with courage and vulnerability. I think any of her stuff, the Dare to Lead stuff especially, is phenomenal. Um, but all of her work on courage and vulnerability is amazing. And I know she's done some work she talks about with um, the, the US Armed Forces, which is, you know, incredible. Mm -hmm. um, so that is always a hugely, you know, recommended work of mine. I'm often giving it as homework for my clients to just go and either watch some of her videos or listen to some of her podcasts or whatever it is, because I think the wealth of knowledge that she brings is, is so easily digestible and easily accessible. She gives words to things that, you know, I've been working on for, for years as well. Um, I also think that, you know, some of the classics are amazing. I love The Prophet. I love... Um, uh, what was the other one? Uh, the Alchemist. They're the two. Oh yeah, can't go past those. I just think they're beautiful prose. It's so they're so easy to read and so quick, and they're just so deep. You know, every time you read them, you get something new from them. So they'd be my big ones. Yeah, the the Alchemist has actually been uh, suggested multiple times on the shows. So yeah. absolutely, hundred percent, get behind that. Well, Amanda, do you have any final words that you would like to leave us with? I think it's look in before you look out. Listen wow. to your inner voice before you go and get distracted by the big shiny lights and everybody else's opinion. Well we played. always know the answer. <laughs> Even though we want to go and survey monkey every person out there to get everybody else's opinion on what we should do, we actually are asking the question because we know the answer. We don't always want to act on it. Oh, I love that survey monkey the life of everyone. I like that. <laughs> well, my I use it a lot. Yeah. <laughs> my ex-husband always used to throw at me, everybody says this about you. And everybody says that about you. And I'm like, everybody? Who did you survey monkey? Are you sure you survey <laughs> monkeyed everybody? You know, that was what I think in my head. But I'm like, okay, everybody, you know, those absolutes. <laughs> oh, I like it though. You're a smart aleck and I like it. <laughs> Amanda, it has been absolutely amazing having you here today. Uh, we've we've been blessed that you've taken the time to invest into us. Uh, I I truly love the fact that we went international and we sound international. <laughs> and it's just thank you for waking up so early to be here with uh, us. Absolute pleasure. Hey, today's episode is only possible thanks to my friend and producer G. Frazier with 369soundesign.com. Jeff and I were stationed together for many years and uh, just kind of that relationship continued to grow into one that we have working together each and every single day today. 
he is the one with the hardest job by trying to make me sound good. Uh, we are blessed by the entire team here at the Wartime Leadership Podcast. See you next time and be blessed. Thank you.